We, uh, we continue looking at this great book, uh, Galatians, and, and some of you have come up to me, uh, you've either come up to me on, on a Sunday or, or throughout the week, or you've shot me an email and you've said how much you've enjoyed this series. I, ha- I have to tell you, I'm having a blast going through it, but it is very convicting all at the same time, so I'm enjoying this as well, and if you're not enjoying it, um, you could listen to somebody else, I guess, uh, but no, I'm, I'm joking. Glad that you're here and glad that you're uh, walking through this with us, even if you're not enjoying this. But, but uh, this book is, is so great, and we're going to talk about inheritance today, quite an inheritance that, that Paul addresses, and, and it got me thinking as I went throughout the week to, to look at some rather odd inheritance stories and I wanted to share a couple of them with you. The first one sort of aggravated me a little bit when I, when I read it, and uh, it involved this lady by the name of Leona Helmsley. Many of you have heard her name. She's a, she was a New York real estate and, and hotel billionaire, and she left $12 million to her pet dog, Trouble. All right, $12 million to a dog, and here's where I get angry. She, the dog received the largest portion of her estate, $12 million to a dog. And then the other thing that aggravated me was this, was that some of her own, I mean, her grandchildren, four of her grandchildren didn't receive anything. So imagine how you feel as her grandchild. A dog that is looking at you and, and comes up to lick you is worth $12 million and you're going, going wait a second, this doesn't seem right to me. I got a little aggravated with that one. And then there was this other one, and I'll, I'll, this, one's a, this one made me chuckle, and I don't know if you've ever heard of an individual by the name of Charles Vance Millar. He was a, a lawyer in Toronto, Canada, and uh, very successful at what he did. He died in 1926, and that's really important for what I'm about to tell you. And so Charles was, he was a very successful lawyer. He also invested wisely. He had a large estate. And, and what he was mostly known for, though, besides being a very shrewd, not, not shrewd, that would be the wrong word, a very wise investor, as well as a very good lawyer, was that he was known more for the practical jokes that he would play. And he was not going to miss an opportunity to play a practical joke with his will. The opening line sort of let people know that there's something bigger going on here. And the opening line of his will said this, This will is necessarily uncommon and capricious because I have no dependents or near relations and no duty rests upon me to leave any property at my death. And what I do leave, and this I think was a very, very telling line, And what I do leave is proof of my folly in gathering and retaining more than I required in my lifetime. And so in essence, he's saying, listen, this is not going to be your average run-of-the-day will that you're about to read, but I have no dependents. I have have not been married or anything like this. And so he decided to do some creative things with his money. And I'm not going to go through the entire list. I'm just going to address three of them that caught my eye. And uh, one of them was this, was that Charles knew of three men, three friends of his, who absolutely despised one another. They did not enjoy being around each other at all. And so, in his creativity, he granted them joint lifetime tenancy at his vacation home in Jamaica, providing that they went there together to use it anytime they wanted I thought that was rather creative. 
Then there were seven prominent Protestant ministers who were very outspoken about not drinking alcohol. He knew them, he had interacted with them, and so in his will, he said this, you, each of you will, re- or, or the seven of you, will receive $700,000 worth of O'Keefe Brewery stock, which, by the way, was a Catholic-run business. But the only way you can receive the $700,000 is if you participate in its management and draw on its, on its dividends. These are seven ministers. I'm sure they didn't really appreciate the gift one bit. But those two things showed a little bit of his sense of humor. But the third one showed not only a sense of humor, but incredible creativity. After they divided up all of the estate, he said this, the balance of my estate is to be converted into cash after 10 years of my death. So they do all these other things, and whatever's left over, they are now to take that, and over the course of 10 years, they are then, they are then to cash it out. And it came to, and remember what I told you, 1926 was when he died. The total came to $750,000, okay? A decent chunk of change. But here's where his creativity came into play. He says that money is then, (laughs) this is sort of funny, that money is then to be given to the woman who gave birth to the most children in that 10-year period of time. In the event of a tie, the money will be divided evenly amongst those women. At the end of 10 years, there was a four-way tie. Each of these women gave birth to nine children over the course of those 10 years. Nine children in 10 years. Some of you are looking at me like, now how exactly does that work? Well, that's for your parents to tell you how that works. But I was blown away by this. Blown away by this. Four women had nine children over 10 years. They divide the $750,000, and in a way, the childless Charles Millar was responsible indirectly for the birth of 36 children. Some of you ladies are looking at me like, I gave birth to one or two or three, but nine over the course of 10 years? Incredible inheritance these people received. But what strikes me as odd is that the inheritance we receive is even more unique, even more fantastic, even more life-altering. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, and we pick it up at verse 23. says this, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are are all children of God through faith. 
For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What, it means, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Father, we pray now as we come to this time of looking at your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes so that we can understand more fully what this inheritance means for us. That you'd open our ears in a way that we can hear and understand more fully this inheritance and how this is to impact our lives. That you would open our minds so that we can understand this inheritance and that you would open our hearts so that we would be transformed by this incredible grace that is, re that is received through faith and that leads us to an inheritance that is far greater than any earthly treasure. Lord Jesus, we would ask that people would not hear anything I say, but only what it is that you want them to hear and desire them to hear, and that you, Lord Jesus, would receive all glory. Lord, do your work, and we thank you so much for being faithful to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so, we start by looking at verse 23 where he says, Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Paul is reminding the people of what was going on pre-Christ. He was, he was reminding the people that, that God, because he cares for us, because he cares for his inheritance so much, is always looking out for our own good. That's what all these people, that's what, that's what parents do for their children. They look out for their own good, whether their children realize it or not. Now, most children would love to have ice cream at every single meal, but parents are looking out for their own good by not giving them ice cream at every single meal. I would love to try that sometime, having ice cream at every meal. I think that would be a great experience for me, but it would not be beneficial. My point is this. God is caring for humanity all the time. He looks out for humanity's good all the time. Even those who are not in his family as of yet, he's still looking out for their best interest. You look at every single thing that God has put in place, it is always for the benefit of humanity. It is always for the benefit of society. That's the way he operates. He doesn't have a special group of people. He says, I really love them more than others. God's love is available to everyone. 
He does it in amazing ways. He's constantly caring for humanity in amazing ways. And so Paul addresses that issue, and yet he uses this term, he says, it's locked up. We don't realize it until the faith that was to come would be revealed. We don't realize how great God is and how loving he is for us until later on. And it's that hindsight thing where all of a sudden we realize, oh, he looked out for me here. He looked out for me there. He looked out for me here. You see where I'm going with this? And so he's saying it's locked up. You don't understand it until Jesus Christ comes on the scene and then he sets us free. Verse 24, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, meaning Christ has paid the price. Christ has done what needs to be done, and it can be experienced. That inheritance can be experienced by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's no longer about following after all these different laws. It's about following after Jesus Christ. And some of us say, well, that seems to be a whole lot easier than following all these laws. We need to be very careful with that. And Paul understands where a person's thinking could go. But when we say that we are going to place our trust and follow after Jesus Christ, it opens up a world of different living. It opens up a world where we are to be clothed in such a way that our life is radic God bless you, that our life is radically changed. Look what happens here in verse 28 or 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul does something rather subtle here, but, he, but it's significant what he does. As you look at verses 23, 24, and 25, you'll notice that he uses this pronoun we over and over and over again. But we come to verse 26, and he shifts. It's a subtle shift of the pronoun. It's a subtle shift that moves from we to you. Look what he says. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. It prompts the question, why the shift? Why would he go from talking about we to now talking about you? Here's what I believe is going on here. Paul is not about to clump himself in with these people who are succumbing and submitting to this false teaching. What he's saying is, we are in agreement about what Jesus Christ has done, but now you have made a decision to not follow after all that Christ has done, and I'm not going to clump myself with you, because I'm now going to preach to you and directly at you, because you have made a decision to add all these other things to your faith and you've made all these additions to who Jesus Christ is, and I'm not playing in that game. So often we look at other people, and, and we look at Christ-following brothers and sisters, and they begin to add in all these other elements, and, we're, and we don't, we're, we're, out, of, we're out, of, out of relation with them because we're not going to go down that path. Paul seems to be addressing that issue here by saying, you guys need to wake up. There's so much more to this inheritance than what you are experiencing right now. 
as you and I are tempted to add into our lives other elements that that we believe will get us a greater sense of who Christ is and a greater grace that is available, as we add elements to Jesus, we end up diminishing the impact of that grace in our lives. It becomes more and more about what we're going to do to prove how much we love God rather than seeing how much God cares for us and wants to walk us through life. That's what Paul's doing here. He's moving from we to you. And then he says this, and verse 27 is a very, very important verse. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Your wardrobe matters. What you wear matters. No, I'm not talking about physical clothes. What I'm talking about is the wardrobe of Jesus Christ. What Paul's saying here is you put on Jesus Christ that clothing. Christ has now clothed you. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we were talking about identity. Because of what Christ has done, we now are identified as Christ followers. People see us as Christ followers. What we represent says an awful lot about who Jesus Christ is. When Paul says you've clothed yourselves with Christ, what he's saying is, do people see Jesus in your life? Do people see Jesus in your life? And how do we know that wardrobe matters? I invite you to go way left in your Bibles. Go to Genesis chapter 3. Okay? We have this joke on staff when we're, when we're doing our Bonhoeffer time and we have different books that we're reading through in the, in the Bible and, and somebody will say, well, where's that particular book? And I'll say, well, it's to the right of Genesis or the left of Revelation. Well, the problem is it doesn't work when we're going to Genesis. So Genesis, just go way left, go to Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has made a bad decision, made a decision that was very costly to them. They decided to turn away from God and do their own thing. But what ends up happening is, as God gives them the consequences of this decision, this oftentimes gets left out. So yes, God says there are consequences to this, and uh, the serpent, you're going to have this issue. Women, you're going to have this issue. Men, you're going to have this issue. But then notice what happens in verse 21. Yahweh God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He didn't want his people going through life unprotected. He wanted them to know that he still cared. He wanted them to know that he was still going to take care of them. So keep that in mind. Now go all the way to the right. Go to Luke chapter 15. And we read about this fascinating story that, that receives a whole lot of, of, of press because it's the, the story of the prodigal son. And one of these times I'm going to do a message and, and, uh, because it, this story is more about a loving father than a prodigal son as we look through it. But what strikes me as the prodigal comes home is the father's response to the prodigal. So we pick it up in verse 17. When the son came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. 
I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Here's the situation. The son knows that he's really messed up. The son knows that he has gone in ways that he ought not to go. He knows that he has brought shame to his family. He's willing to go back and no longer live as a son. He says, I'm okay with that. At least I know I'm going to be taken care of because my father takes care of even those hired hands of his. He takes care of them. He watches, all, he watches out for them. I'm willing to be that type of a person. I've brought dishonor on, into my family. I don't, want, I, I don't need to be that person. I need to be, I'm more than happy to be a hired helper. He's at the bottom. We continue on in verse 20. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. So we get all excited. This, this is now a beautiful situation. This is a beautiful scene. As the father wraps his arms around him and, and kisses him and cares for him and says, and, and, and he's just so glad he's home. And we focus in on that, and we should, but here's what we miss out on. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He lays out the conditions. He says, listen, I, I know I don't deserve to be called your son. That's where I am. That's where my life is right now. But notice what the father does in verse 22. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Genesis chapter 3, humanity completely messes it up, completely goes a different way. And what does God do? He clothes humanity. In Luke chapter 15, the prodigal comes home saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does the father do? Not only does the father run out to him and hug him and kiss him, the father says, in essence, don't talk that way. I want you to be clothed because you are my son. When Paul says that we are clothed by Jesus Christ, that we are, clothed, we are to clothe, oursel clothe ourselves with Christ, what he's talking about is you're no longer that hired help. You're no longer that person that has no family. You are that one who is to be clothed. And what does it mean to be clothed by Christ? It means this, that we are to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to those around us. We are to live our lives in such a way that when they see us, they see Jesus Christ. As I think about the events that have transpired over the course of this past week, I cannot help but shake my head in disbelief as individuals were able to justify in their minds that going to a garlic festival to shoot people made any sense whatsoever, or the situation in El Paso at a Walmart made sense to them. And I was informed during the meet and greet time that apparently there was another shooting this morning. It makes no sense to me. It really doesn't. And it and I read this verse, and as I read this verse about clothing ourselves with Christ, 
It's very tempting for me, and it's very tempting for all of us as Christ followers, to sit back and grouse and complain about what's going on in this world, to, to point fingers at this issue or that issue, and completely miss out on what it means to be clothed by Jesus Christ. To be known as people of grace rather than wrath. To be known as people that are willing to step in and serve. Being clothed in Christ means reflecting his character in the midst of all of our lives. Being clothed in Christ means that his passions become our passions. Being clothed in Christ means that his priorities become our priorities. Being clothed in Christ means that we allow his ways to permeate all that we do, no matter how small and inconsequential we may think it is. We still allow his ways to be on display constantly. That's what Paul's driving at here. That when you are clothed with Christ, the world is to see a different, per, a, a different person, a person that, that, that has a history and that has been transformed by Jesus Christ. I need to be very careful with what I'm about to do because I'm, I do not want to downplay what has happened in those tragedies. Trust me. Those are tragic situations. But there's a part of me that wonders how well Christ followers are clothing themselves with Christ when people do these types of heinous acts. Do people see Christ followers as grace-filled individuals who can come alongside these people before they go and do these heinous acts and we're willing to get involved in their lives and help out in whatever way we can and and trust me we live in a broken fallen world i get it but yet the thing that i've been wrestling with throughout this week is to be clothed with Christ means that we are to represent Christ in the way we live our lives. And it can happen in very small and inconsequential ways. If we're not being clothed with Christ in small and inconsequential ways, then it makes the bigger things nearly impossible. Let me give you a couple examples. It might seem small and inconsequential to you that we have six designated spots, and they say this, visitor parking, welcome to our church. We have six spots designated for this. And study after study has shown that when people are looking for a church, and if they cannot find a place to park, you know what they're going to do? They're going to keep right on going. So we've dedicated these six spots to people who may very well be looking for a church, who don't have a church to attend, yet oftentimes these spots are filled with people who regularly attend our church. It seems like a small, inconsequential thing, yet if we're clothing ourselves with Christ, it's communicating the wrong message by parking in those spots. 
It's a small, inconsequential thing, but yet if a person's looking to become part of a community, looking to make that step, and we're parking in these spots, what ends up happening is people are saying, I'm going to go find somewhere else to go. They're missing out on the opportunity that, they, that we can give them through Jesus Christ to say, we're here, we welcome you, we invite you in. It's small, it's inconsequential. But yet, being clothed in Christ means that we are a servant, meaning that every little thing that we do, we're looking to serve. And then here's the second one. Another small and inconsequential thing has to do with the front door of this church. Not whether or not it's clean, not whether or not it has fingerprints on it, or whatever the case may be. But no, it's what happens as a new person is approaching that door. A person who has no idea who any of us are. And the anxiety that that person is experiencing as they get closer and closer to that door, their heart rate goes up. Their hands start to sweat. They don't know what lies on the other side of that door. We have it down. We know where the garden room is. We know where the fireside room is. We know where the sanctuary is. We know where the kid zone is. We know where journey meets. We know all these types of things. We have a vernacular down really well. But for a first-time visitor, it's all Greek to them. They have no idea. And so what I'm driving at is this, is that how do we alleviate this problem? Better signage would, would help. And that's one of the things that we're doing with the Haggai Project, which is our renovation project. But I will submit to you, the better way to help people who are new is seeing them at the front door with the, with the deer in the headlights look. And instead of looking at them saying, wow, they look strange, we actually discontinue our conversation with people that we've been around for a long time, and we go over and we extend a hand to them and say, we're glad you're here. How can we help you? Two small, inconsequential things, parking and welcoming people in. But I'm here to tell you, what I'm here to tell you is, as we clothe ourselves with Christ, these small, inconsequential things need to be natural for us as Christ followers because we're called to serve. And I realize I might have stepped on some toes with these two things. You know what? Clothe yourself with Christ. That's where I'm going with this. We clothe ourselves with Christ because as we clothe ourselves with Christ in, the, in these small and inconsequential ways, what ends up happening is that people experience the greatness of God's grace that we're communicating each and every week. Paul says, clothe yourselves with Christ. And follow me here. As we clothe ourselves with Christ and take seriously these small inconsequential things, who knows, God may very well be providing us an opportunity to care for somebody who's in a really, really bad spot. And we now have the opportunity to share with them about Jesus Christ. That's the connection here. And Paul's not done. Paul's not done. We pick it up in verse 28. He says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
Paul talks about clothing yourselves in Christ as part of this inheritance that we receive from him. And then he does this verse in verse 28 about there's no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. And he's saying this, one is always better than three. One is always better than three. Being unified is always better than being separate. And here's some irony to this. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Every devout Jewish male, which Paul was before Jesus Christ, every devout Jewish male prayed the following prayer every morning. Blessed are you, Lord our God, creator of the universe, who has created me a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, an Israelite and not a Gentile, circumcised and not uncircumcised, free and not a slave. Every single morning, devout Jewish men prayed this prayer. And now Paul has this encounter with the grace of Jesus Christ, the grace of God expressed through Jesus Christ, and he writes these words in verse 28, neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This prayer that Paul had prayed his entire life now comes up against Jesus Christ, and he says, wow, I can't pray that anymore. We're all one because of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine what was going on in Paul's mind as he penned those words. As he was reflecting back on these prayers that he prayed all his life about being grateful that he was a man, not a woman, about being grateful that he was a Jew, not a Gentile, about being grateful that he was free, not a slave, and now all of a sudden he writes this and says, we're all one in Jesus Christ. That is revolutionary. That is radical. That changes his life. If you don't think that what Paul says here in verse 28 is radical and life-altering, I don't know what to tell you. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of Philip Yancey. And he was reflecting on this particular verse, and he said this. He says, as I read accounts of the New Testament church, no characteristic stands out more sharply than diversity. Beginning with Pentecost, the Christian church dismantled the barriers of gender, race, and social class that had marked Jewish congregations. Paul, who as a rabbi had given thanks daily that he was not born a woman, slave, or Gentile, marveled over the radical change. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And then he continues on to this story. He says this, One modern Indian pastor told me, Most of what happens in Christian churches, including even miracles, can be duplicated in Hindu and Muslim congregations. But in my area, only Christians strive, however ineptly, to mix men and women of different castes, races, and social groups. That's the real miracle. Yancey continues and says this, Diversity complicates rather than simplifies life. Perhaps for this reason, we tend to surround ourselves with people of similar age, economic class, and opinion. And then he says this, Church offers a place. Christ-following communities offer a place where infants and grandparents, 
unemployed and executives, immigrants and blue bloods can come together. Just yesterday, I sat sandwiched between an elderly man hooked up to a tank puffing oxygen and a breastfeeding baby who grunted loudly and contentedly throughout the entire sermon. Where else can we find that mixture? Only in the body of Christ. And yes, we stumble along the way. But one is always better than three. We are called to be united, and we unite ourselves around Jesus Christ. We clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. And then Paul's not done. We pick it up in verse, chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. We skip down to verse 3. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world, but... When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and get this, that we might receive adoption to sonship. The inheritance that is offered by God through Jesus Christ is simply the best. There is no other. There's no other inheritance that comes anywhere close to this. And what I love about what Paul's doing here is this is a 24-7, 365 promise that you can be and should be his child. You're adopted. It isn't something that he says, yeah, today I really want to care for you. Tomorrow, not so sure. God doesn't operate that way. God is not some fickle God. God is the one that says, I love you so much. And look at verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might, notice this, that we might receive adoption. We receive this. We don't earn it. We receive it. Because it's a gift given through faith in Jesus Christ. He always comes through. And what he's saying to the Galatians is this, realize what you have in Jesus Christ. Realize what you have. Realize this, 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 this monumental inheritance that is yours in Jesus Christ. God did what needed to be done at just the right time. Because he knew this, we needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ didn't miss that opportunity. Verse 6 because you are a son, God sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. The disciples were looking at Jesus Christ, and one of the things that they noticed as, as they observed him over the course of those three years was this, that he prayed a lot. And they said, teach us how to pray. And his opening line is, Abba, Father. All of a sudden, he's providing access. He's providing this amazing thing. Jesus Christ didn't miss an opportunity so that we would have the opportunity to be in the best family possible. He didn't miss that opportunity. He didn't miss that opportunity. And so that we can then call out to God because we are, verse 7, we are no longer slaves, but God's child. And since you are a child, God has made you also an heir. There's an old Roman story that tells how a Roman emperor was once enjoying a great victory. He had the privilege of marching his troops through the streets of Rome with all of his captured trophies and his prisoners behind him. 
The emperor was marching with his troops, and the streets were lined with cheering people. The tall legionnaires had lined the street edges to keep the people in their places. At one point on this triumphal route, there was a little platform where the empress and her family were sitting to watch the emperor go by and all the pride of his victory. On the platform with his mother was the emperor's youngest son, just a little boy. And as the emperor came near, that little boy jumped off the platform, burrowed through the crowd, and tried to dodge between the legs of the legionnaires so that he could run out onto the road to meet his father's chariot. The legionnaire stooped down and stopped him. He swung him up in his arms and he said, you can't do that. Don't you know who that is in the chariot? That is the emperor. You cannot run to his chariot. And the little boy looked at the legionnaire and laughed and said, he may be your emperor, but he is my daddy. God provides that type of intimacy because of Jesus Christ. We can look at God in some far-off, distant way that he doesn't get overly involved in our lives, but because of Jesus Christ, we move from a distant God to direct access to God. That's part of the inheritance. And it's quite an inheritance that can be enjoyed in our lives. You see, God knows what's best for us and he gives us an inheritance in Jesus Christ that takes care of everything we need. And yes, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of chaos, God says, you're still my child. You can still call me dad. So if you have questions about Jesus Christ, if you're wondering about him, and you're wondering what it means to place your trust in him, please track us down. Track myself down, Rob down, one of the other elders down. And we'd be more than happy to talk to you about Jesus Christ, the one who provides an inheritance unlike any other. Father, we pray now, as we reflect on these words, we would ask that you would guide us and help us to understand more fully this inheritance that you've given to us. We pray as we come to this time of celebrating communion that we would receive this communion as one body. Lord, that we would be a gracious people, thankful for what you've accomplished for us and this incredible inheritance that comes because of Jesus Christ. May we be ever in awe of your generosity. And so as we reflect and remember by taking these elements, may you remind us of how great you are and how wonderful that inheritance is because of Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray, amen. So Rob pointed this out earlier that we celebrate communion. And as we celebrate communion, uh, we remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. And the tradition here is that we hand out the elements and we wait and we take them together. And the reason why we do that is to represent that one body that we are, that one body of Christ that meets at the corner of, of Blanco and San Vicente, that one body that says that we want to proclaim God's grace to us. 
And the children are going to come in, and they participate with us. And let me just give you some, some quick instruction. These, this is done, and we remember this, those of us who have said yes to Jesus Christ, this is part of our remembrance. It's part of our celebration. If you don't know Christ, we invite you to reflect on what you've heard this morning and, and who Jesus Christ is. And perhaps at this time you say, Lord, I'm placing my trust in you. You've done what needed to be done. And may I celebrate that with my newfound brothers and sisters. But if you don't have that relationship with Christ, we invite you to simply reflect on what you've heard. We invite you to let the elements pass you by. And again, just to let you know, we're here to talk. We're here to listen and do whatever. But Jesus Christ reminds us of how great he is. And to help us understand that and give an offering of thanks, we sing this song.